Hey there, and welcome to the Box Office Watch podcast, where we keep watch on how much money movies are making and why. This is the show recapping the weekend of April 7th through the 9th, 2023. My name is Paulo, and I'm your host. Hope everyone's doing well out there. Myself, it's been a busy week. I actually got a new job started on Monday, so this ride is coming out a little bit later this week. Um, but there's still a lot to go over. Uh, we have possibly the biggest opening of the year, potentially the biggest grossing film of the year opening this past weekend. We'll see uh, as time goes on. And of course, a couple of major headlines from... Uh, both Star Wars and from HBO Max and, and Warner Brothers about the futures of their products. Um, but first, as always, let's go ahead and hop into the numbers. In first place, of course, is the Super Mario Bros. movie. Opening on Wednesday for the three-day weekend, it made $146.3 million in 4,343 theaters for a stunning 33701 per theater average. If you include the Wednesday and Thursday numbers, it comes out to $204.6 million domestic. Adding in another $172.8 million it's made overseas, and that's a massive $377.4 million worldwide. This is easily the biggest domestic open for the year thus far, and would be good for the third high, biggest opening of last year behind only Doctor Strange and Black Panther. It was actually kind of nuts tracking this one over the weekend as estimates kept getting progressively higher and higher as we got more data in. Before the release, Box Office Pros had it pegged at only $86.6 million for the three-day weekend, which in hindsight is laughably low. Now, despite a poor critic reception, you know, mostly around a paper-thin plot and getting a 57% on Rotten Tomatoes, it obviously held its own among audiences with 96% audience score and an A cinema score, which is in line with most of Illumination's prior films. Uh, looking internationally, it made another $27.4 million in Mexico, which is the third highest all-time over there, the best for an animated film. Uh, the UK had $19.6 million, Germany $14 million, China did an okay $12 million, not, not, not the, what people were hoping for, and, but it's still the highest of an animated film post-pandemic from Hollywood. And then France finds out the top five internationally with $10.4 million. The crazy thing about this number, though, is that notably Japan, where, of course, Nintendo is based, and Korea have not even opened yet. Japan is set to open this uh, at the end of the month over the Golden Week holiday, uh, which is starting to do amazingly over there. Now, if you want to look at some of the records that this film has broken, domestically, it is the biggest Wednesday film opening of all time, taking the record away from Transformers Revenge of the Fallen's $200 million from 2009. This is obviously Illumination's biggest opening ever, beating out 2015's Minions 3, a three-day opening of $115.7 million. Currently the second-highest opening animated film domestically, beating Finding Dory's $135.1 million from 2016. It is only behind Incredibles 2 opening in 2018 of $182.7 million, though obviously I think it'll probably end up beating uh, Incredible 2's uh, worldwide domestic gross. Uh, worldwide gross. Uh, however, you look at, if you look at global openings, it's, this uh, Super Mario Bros. is also the highest opening opening for an animated film ever, beating out Frozen 2's $358.5 million, though if you look at international numbers only, Frozen 2 still has it beat $228.2 million. It's also the highest grossing, open grossing debut for a video game movie domestically, um, beating out Sonic 2's $72.1 million last year, and it's made so much as actually beat the entire domestic gross of Detective Pikachu and both Sonic movies in its first weekend. Now, it hasn't quite yet beaten Warcraft or Detective Pikachu's $430 million worldwide or the first Sonic's $400 million uh, as, of the, as of the last weekend, but I believe at some point in the past couple of days, it has crossed the $400 million line, and probably Probably by next weekend, we'll probably have the uh, will be the highest grossing video game adaptation of all time. 
Um, some other not quite records, but still impressive. Uh, if you look at pure Friday grosses, it's the 10th highest domestic film of all time, 55 million, the only animated film in that top 10. It's also the highest Friday for a film that did not open on a Friday, ahead of The Force Awakens' $49 million. If you also exclude Thursday previews, looking at pure Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, it actually opened and made more than The Rise of Skywalker, which is pretty impressive. This is also the third best weekend for AMC since the pandemic. Apparently, their Mario collectible popcorn tin sold out faster than any other collectible they've offered in the past. And then being on many uh, premium large format screens, it is the highest animated opening in IMAX worldwide, $21.6 million. This film is truly firing on all cylinders and acting as a true tentpole film, hitting not only the, of course, kid demographic who's been starving for films since the Puss in Boots in December, but also the more general ca- casual audience with you know an over-under uh, 25 age split of 52% to 48%. We'll talk about it more later, but when I saw this last week, uh, the theater was packed in the middle of the day on a weekday. Crazy. Uh, with a $100 million production budget here, which is notably uh, Illumination's highest, bu- highest budget ever, though b- by about $5 million, it's already the first week by the first weekend far and away profitable and it's easily looking to make over a billion for its total lifetime it's already made 20 million on monday which is the highest ever for an illumination film uh, that's a 42 percent drop from sunday to monday which is bananas uh, sonic 2 for example had a 77 percent drop in the same time period and avatar 2 last december had a 55 percent drop from saturday from sunday to monday um, so the question really is how high above a billion will this go and whether it can be to take the title of the highest grossing animated film of all time from Frozen 2 with $1.45 billion. I think that one's not quite as locked, but really very exciting to watch. If it can be the $116 billion, that would be good for the top five of all time and the highest grossing Illumination film. We can say for sure, though, is we can probably expect Universal and Illumination have the new movie franchise locked down moving forward, especially after the teaser and the post credit scene. Uh, Avengers-style Super Smash Bros. movie, when, Nintendo? Now, before we get to the rest of the numbers, you know, I do want to make an observation here and perhaps a bit of a, a call-out. Um, not not call-out, but kind of a prediction. Um, with superhero movies dominating the landscape since 2008 with both The Dark Knight and Iron Man at the top of the box office that year, and the subsequent rise and the attempted rise of DC of the DC universe, combined with the relative underperformance in the past couple in the past year or so of post-pandemic phase of the MCU with The Eternals and Ant-Man and arguably Thor, Black Panther, and Doctor Strange sequels underperforming, the latter three, not perhaps not necessarily flopping, but just not making as much money as they were hoping. As well as the continued woes of DC with Sazam and Black Panther, Black Adam leading to a complete reset, not to mention whatever Sony is doing with Morbius, it certainly feels like we're due for a reset of, you know, kind of what the next big thing in movies is. And, you know, with Mario himself just hitting 40 years old this year, the medium of video games really feels mature enough for, you know, people who were kids when these films came out to really be in the senior positions at studios to really get these films made. I mean, if you think about it, the golden age of comics being, you know, late 40s into the 50s uh, predates you know, the first home arcade systems like Pong by about 20 years or so. So it makes sense, you know, a little under 20 years after the rise of the dominance of the superhero movie genre. If, you know, if you really go back to you know 2003 with the uh, with the Spider-Man movie, um, it really makes sense that um, you know we we would see the the 
uh, after the rise of the superheroes, that video games, you know, as a big part of, of culture, would be kind of like the next source of adaptation material for uh, for media for the, for movies. Now, think about not only Mario, of course, but you know, as we mentioned, you know, Sonic or Detective Pikachu or even Uncharted and Rampage. You know, those films kind of laid the foundation for you know maybe they didn't make a ridiculous amount of money, but you know, they started sowing those a little bit of proof of concept. Think of TV shows. You know, The Last of Us um, has been the talk of the town the past few months, and you know, even if the Halo franchise wasn't that well received um it's still there um mortal kombat for all its fault is still getting a mad is a, still getting an hbo max exclusive sequel and it looks like legendary you know has actually in the past week or so picked up the tv and live action film rights for the street fighter franchise of course you also have jason momoa set to star in a minecraft movie um in a couple of years and apparently five nights at freddy actually just got announced its release date in peacock on in theaters and on peacock later in october this year now, I'm not saying here, of course, that will be 100% sudden sifted video game movies and that comic book movies will be completely fade from obscurity overnight, uh, or that every video game adaptation will be a hit just because it's from a video game. Far from it, actually. You know, there's a long history of, you know, Prince of Persia, Assassin's Creed, all these other, you know, video game adaptation movies, Resident Evil movies that have a poor track record thus far for a reason. It's because a lot of these adaptations tried to twist, you know, the video game experience into a pre-existing formula, you know, usually a generic, you know, thriller type films such as like you know Tomb Raider fa- films but you know the film the films that in the past years have succeeded you know Mario Sonic um, one obviously these brands have been somewhat protective of their IPs um, but in another sense they really captured the sense of what makes these films is I'll talk about Mario in a little bit for example Sonic you know has kind of like this laid back a- attitude to it that does not trying to be a grim dark and beauty reboot kind of in the same way that you know when Ryan, Ryan Reynolds you know brought Deadpool uh, to, uh, to to life you know as the wisecracking you know that's a way different adaptation than when they first tried to adapt it in Wolverine Origins without a mouth. Um, and you know, I think having that sort of reverence for the source material and knowing what makes it tick, um, and in addition to, of course, having great execution on it will be key. Um, you know, comic book movies will still have their place, of course, right? There's, they, they Obviously, there's a lot of inertia behind them. They're not going to stop, at, at the very least, with the MCU for a couple more years, and DC has a whole plan for it. I mean, you know, we've had multiple iterations of Batman. We'll continue to have multiple iterations of Batman. Same for Spider-Man and so on. Um, what I am saying, though, is don't be surprised if you see Disney making moves, perhaps, to acquire the rights to video games, much like they did with acquiring Marvel a while back. And also, don't be surprised if you see video game publishers putting, you know, putting their films on the their IP on the proper on the market to see what sort of options they can get for their bigger franchises for uh, media adaptations. Uh, in, in any case, detour side, let's go back to the numbers. In second place, John Wick 4 held on to its second place from last weekend, probably as you know more mature counter programming to Mario, with a 49% drop to 14.4 million in 3,607 theaters for 4,011 per theater average and 146.9 million total to date as of its third weekend. Another 161 million overseas puts it at about 308 million lifetime, only about 19 million or so away from surpassing the third film's worldwide total, and 25 million away from its domestic total and you know in weekend over weekend comparisons it's ahead by about 21 million domestically at the same point in time so i think it'll be able to get there it's only a question of i think at this point will it be able to get to the uh, 200 million dollar range um domestically but regardless if it does or doesn't i think you can call this a success perhaps not as big a success as they were hoping for but i mean given it's relatively the end of the franchise uh well not unless uh, lionsgate has something to do with it but at least for the mainline uh, john wick storyline i think uh, that's all fine and dandy 
Third place for this weekend went to another Wednesday opener. Amazon Studios' Ben Affleck-directed Matt Damon-led film based on a true story about Nike Air. Um, opening to 14.4 million in 3,507 theaters, it had a 4,122 per theater average and a 20.2 million domestic total after five days. Another 10 million overseas puts it at just about $30 million. Now, this one was pretty well received. You know, 92% critics, 98% audience on Rotten Tomatoes, a cinema score. It did also open a bit above what Box Office Post was forecasting, 8 to 13 million for the three day, 11 to 6 million, 16 million for the five days. The question is, is Amazon happy with this? Honestly, it's really hard to say. This film was acquired from Skydance uh, with uh, and Ben Affleck's uh, production company um, uh, um, for about $130 million, which, you know, Affleck getting $90 million of that, you know, f- through the production company um, and the remaining $40 million, you know, going to the various rights holders and producers and so on. So, you know, with uh, so for Amazon, this is a $130 million cost to acquire. So a $20 million opening domestically it does not seem that great. However, this one was originally stated to be just purely an, an Amazon Prime release without any theatrical release at all. So it was never really, I think, expected to make any theatrical money at this point. So this is honestly just a way for them to, I think, recoup some of those costs before getting whatever benefit they were expecting to get by putting it on their library. And the way you can think of it as uh, the, 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 the theatrical release as marketing for their, uh, th- for their streaming release. Um, so, you know, uh, really, as far as profit expectations go, you know, you can, I, I think, throw any real heuristics of, you know, to make 2.5x its, its, its uh, acquisition cost uh, out of the window, right? Still, I think what the bigger picture here, though, is that Amazon has actually put a fit. This is the second time Amazon has put a film of theirs into theaters without having it go on streaming at the same time. Uh, the other being Mindy Kaling and Emma Thompson's Late Night from 2019. This doesn't necessarily include Oscar films um, getting a, a limited theatrical release, such as Manchester by the Sea, or other co-releases such as I believe The Big Sick with Kumail Nanjiani um, being uh, released collaboratively with Lionsgate if I'm not mistaken. Still I think between this and Am- and Apple's wider commitment to release and Amazon's wider commitment to releasing 12, 10 to 12 films and theaters per year as well as Apple's plans for this year for Oscar hopefuls Kills the Flower Moon and Napoleon I think things are looking up for more amicably between the relationship between big streamers and theaters more than before um, if we can get more stuff like this in theaters even if it doesn't necessarily make money for them uh, in theaters. Uh, fourth place this weekend went to last week's number one film, Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves, 13.8 million with 3,856 for a theaters for a 3,600 per theater average, a steep 63% drop from its opening weekend. Winning domestic total is 61.6 million with another 61.6 million overseas for pretty even 123.2 million worldwide uh, on its $150 million production budget. I think this puts any hope that it had of somehow surviving Mario out of the picture, you know, uh, fa- critical fail so to speak. $100 million domestic may be doable, but I think will still be a stretch, and overseas it doesn't really have the traction to get to even $200 million. Quite the same, honestly, that this happened, uh, it has ended up where it did, you know, sandwiched between two of the most anticipated films of the year, despite being a surprising critical darling. I have a feeling that this will end up becoming a cult classic down the line once it hits Paramount Plus, and it is another TV series down there. Now, I did see this one this week, I have some more thoughts on it, which I'll be sharing at the end of the episode. Rounding out the top five is another Paramount film, Scream 6, with 3.4 million in 2,286 theaters, for a 36% drop and a 14.99 per theater average. It did cost $100 million domestic total, coming in at $103.9 million, and in fact, that is good enough for it to take the crown as the highest-grossing Scream film domestically in the franchise, beating out the first film by less than a million as of right now. 
Uh, overseas, it's sitting at about 162 million, which is about 11 million or so behind the first film and 10 million behind the second. But it did move into third place ahead of the third film by about a million dollars for the third highest total worldwide. Overall, well done there. Um, we'll see if we can get like, out uh, worldwide, but I think this is probably as high as it goes. And another film that we add to the $100 million films for the year. Outside of the top five, Sazam lost about 120, uh, 1,200 theaters down to 2,200 as it hit 56 million this weekend, just barely crossing the last, the first film's domestic opening. Yikes! Uh, in new openings, IFC Films uh, Bob Ross Send Up Paint, starring Owen Wilson, made only 570,000 in 819 theaters for less than 700,000, 700 per theater average. Not where you want to be. A24 did have a limited opening of Sewing Up, hitting a 16,733 per theater average in four theaters. Neon released How to Blow Up a Pipeline in 12 theaters for 9,621 per theater average. Well Go USA had a new Jackie Chan film, Ride On, which we'll talk about later. 48 theaters, not much fanfare, making only about 65,000. We also had a new awards favorite from last year, Joyland, releasing in the U.S. in one theater for the highest non-Mario per theater average of the weekend, $20.6 million. Uh, and then worth noting, Ant-Man and the Wasp dropped 76% this past weekend to less than 300,000 theaters and is in less than 500 theaters wide, so being about 4 million behind the second Ant-Man film's domestic total, it seems like it won't even cross that at this point, so definitely a big disappointment there for Disney. Overall, total box office this weekend was $204.8 million, the highest weekend since Black Panther Wakanda Forever last year. Uh, that's why this opening weekend even beat out the Avatar 2 opening weekend. Um, this coming weekend, there are a number of smaller releases, you know, uh, no, no major releases trying to compete with uh, Mario. Uh, the biggest opening this weekend is looking to be Universal's Dracula comedy Renfield, uh, starring Nicolas Cage, set to make 11 to $16 million opening weekend, according to box office pros. Competing for the second place uh, of the new openers will be either Sony's The Pope's Exorcist, starring Russell Crowe, uh, and Crunchyroll's release of the Makoto Shinkai film Suzume, both in about the 4 to $9 million range or so. Um, personally, I'm rooting for Suzume. I have tickets to see that on Saturday with a friend. Uh, we also have Bleecker Street film, starring um, uh, Tony Collette, called Mafia Mama, uh, mystery film Nefarious from Soli Deo Gloria releasing, and then Briarcliff Entertainment Sports biopic Sweetwater, none of those having estimates. Uh, we also have the limited release from A24 of the Arya Oster, directed Joaquin Phoenix-led film Bo is Afraid, uh, with a wide release coming the weekend after. Uh, looking overseas, aside from the obvious Super Mario dominance, we do have China to look at. While it did not make much of an impact here stateside, Jackie Chan's Ride On ended up being the top-grossing film of the weekend, making $11.7 million. Makoto Shinkai's Suzume made $8 million the weekend to get $102.6 million in China, the all-time Japanese film over there. Hachiko, the film about the Japanese dog uh, from China, made about $7.7 million for third place, $27.2 million total after two weekends. And then Mario's three-day weekend comes in at $6.3 million, uh, of course, made fi uh, twelve million over the five-day release, and then local film, um, um, and then the and then one of the local films uh, brings up the top five um, with two point seven million for ninety-four million after a month. Uh, speaking of Suzume, it has actually jumped to the fourth highest grossing anime film of all time, $256 million to date ahead of its Western release, jumping past last year's uh, off One Piece Red. Its next goal would be to beat your name's $382 million worldwide, which is a bit of a tall order, but I would say $300 million is probably on the table, assuming it can do well over here in the West. Now, before we get to the end of the episode, there are, of course, a number of headlines that we need to talk about, and we've got some big ones. First up, at Star Wars Celebration in London, we got an announcement of three new Star Wars films. Uh, yes, as films, not TV series. First, James Mangold, who uh, just directed the Indiana Jones film, 
will direct a story about the first Jedi set 25,000 years before the prequel trilogy. Next up, Dave Filoni, who has been working on the Mandalorian TV series on Disney+, Plus, alongside John Favreau, will be running the upcoming Ahsoka series. Uh, he's set to work on a film set just before The Force Awakens about the war between the Imperial Remnant and the New Republic. And then Sermina Obaid Chinoy, a two-time documentary Academy Award winner and director of two of the Miss Marvel uh, television series episodes, will be the first woman and person of color to direct a Star Wars film. Hers will be set 15 years after The Rise of Skywalker and will feature the return of Daisy Ridley as Rey as he works to rebuild the Jedi Order. Uh, no dates have been set for any of these, but it is notable, of course, that Disney, who has been sorry about bringing Star Wars back to the big screen after the relative collapse of the sequel trilogy, is now making movies... Uh, is not making movies to return to the big screen. Uh, also confirmed is the fact that is that the super popular Mandalorian television series and the associated TV series Ahsoka, Book of Boba Fett, and so on uh, will have a cinematic conclusion uh, and tying up all of its series on the big screen, though that is, of course, a, a bit of a ways off. Uh, obviously, given their record with canceling uh, upcoming films that have been announced, you know we have the uh, the Kevin Feige one, the uh, the Patty Jenkins one, and 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 so on. Um, after quote unquote creative differences, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna take all of these with a bit of a grain of salt. But given the fact that the Ray film already has a star attached, um, and despite the script not being done for another six weeks or so, and then Mangold's relationship with Lucasfilms, and of course uh, Filoni's long involvement with the universe directly, this one has I think a better bit of a chance of sticking around. Uh, not to be outdone, Warner Brothers Discovery announced a rebranding of their uh, streaming service, combining HBO Max and Discovery Plus, Plus into a single service called Max. Um, this service will launch May, May 23rd for three tiers, uh, $9.99 with ads, $15.99 without ads, and $19.99 for the Max Ultimate ad-free version, which includes 4K streaming and four concurrent streams, while the other two streams only have HD and two concurrent streams. Uh, as previously announced, Discovery Plus will remain its own service with a $4.99 and Five ninety nine tiers. Um, also announced were a number of new projects. Uh, most of these television series, you know, Big Bang Theory is getting a new show in the same universe. The Penguins' first teaser trailer, a new dating show called Love and Translation, Game of Thrones getting another prequel of the a Night of the Seven Kingdoms, The Hits Night, about a hundred years before the main story. True Detective is back. The Gremlins getting an animated TV series. A first look at the Rick and Morty anime, and the big one is uh, a full length Harry Potter adaptation uh, set over the course of the decade, covering the original books with a new cast. Uh, obviously, it doesn't look that they'll be uh, going the way of Jason Kilar, um, uh, you know, in, with, with putting it all in on HBO Max, but still uh, pretty major news for the studio. Uh, some other headlines, you know, ask, after their Oscar hopeful film, uh, Magazine Dreams got a little bit derailed thanks to the Jonathan Major's arrest. It looks like Searchlight is putting their hopes of an award season for Taika Waititi's next gold wins. They moved its release date back from October to November 17th. Uh, this now puts it up against Liongate's uh, Hunger Games prequel, as well as the Universal Trolls Band Together sequel. Uh, Sylvester Stallone and Rocky and Balboa Productions signed a deal with Amazon Studios, uh, which may open up potential for a Rocky Seven and a return in Creed Four. It also looks like Morbius, uh, after Morbius, only is being a bit more cautious about its Venomverse. It looks like the Bad Bunny film about El Muerto is currently at a standstill. And then this one isn't quite a full story yet, but it's still developing and definitely something to keep an eye on in the next couple of weeks. The Writers Guild current contract, you know, three-year term, so last signed in 2020, um, the current contract will end on May 1st. And this week, they are currently holding a strike authorization vote uh, so that in the event that they are not able to come to a deal by the end of the, by the, end of the month, um, that there will be a strike, uh, which, you know, last time there was a, the, the sentiment is seems rather pro-strike. Um, there hasn't been a strike since the, the infamous 2000. 
2007-2008 writer's strike which lasted for 100 days and that crippled future development in Hollywood for what felt like years to come so uh, here's hoping that something can get worked out ahead of that otherwise uh, things are, are not going to be turned out well for the next couple of years. Uh, to end the episode, though, this time we have two films that I've been watching lately, the Super Mario Brothers movie and Dungeons & Dragons. So, first off, Super Mario Brothers movie, I actually... Uh, originally planned to see uh, Dungeons & Dragons, I believe, on Thursday, or Wednesday or Thursday. Um, I think it was, I, I forget which day it was exactly. Hold on, actually, let me pause and, and pull up my AAMC ticket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it ended up being Thursday uh, Thursday afternoon. I ended up going, you know, 1.15 p.m. I actually originally was planning on going to see the Dungeons & Dragons movie because that interested me more. But unfortunately, um, I thought at first it was actually that they uh, canceled my screening to make more room for Mario. But no, it was just uh, it was just that there was uh, something faulty with the projector at the time. So um, I ended up, you know, rebooking to see the Mario movie instead. And man, first off, get it going in, this was probably the most full that I've seen the movie theater since... Probably Glass Onion uh, over Thanksgiving when that came out for a limited time. Um, but, I mean, this was full. Obviously, a lot of kids, you know, just maybe field trips in the middle of the day or whatever. Or people were off because of uh, the Easter holiday or whatever. But in any case, I mean, you know, it was super jam-packed. And as, as far as the film goes, I mean, I obviously, right, I kind of grew up. I'm, I'm, in, I'm 30, 31 years old, so I kind of grew up in the heyday of, of Mario. Of Mario. Um, I mean, you know, one of the first games we got for our Game Boys after our Game Boy Advance, you know, was, you know, Super Mario World 3. Um, so, you know, definitely, definitely have played a lot of Mario. I won't say I'm like the biggest Mario person, right? I've never been that good at platforming in general. You know, I, I, I mostly stick to Smash Brothers when it comes to video games or, or, you know, not, not things that require quite so much dexterity um, or, or technical prowess, so to speak. Um, so, you know, the platformers games generally aren't my thing, but of course, you know, kind of being a, being someone tangentially interested in video games, um, you're, you're not going to avoid, you're not going to avoid Mario, you know, just kind of by osmosis, right? So, not necessarily the biggest super fan of Mario, um, but you know, kind of aware enough of enough of the of the of it that you know a lot of the uh, a lot of the Easter eggs you know were fun, right? I mean, I think it was you know it was definitely a a, a decent looking enough film, and I think it moved along decently enough. Um, you know, voice acting concerns about Chris Pratt. I mean, you know, I I did find myself getting taken out of it a little bit of time by just how Chris Pratty he sounded, um, but also I can appreciate that you know necessarily going full on Italian probably wouldn't have been the best idea. Um, but I think, you know, a voice acting wise, I think Zach Black obviously brought the best um, of it. And then I think, um, and Charlie Day as well as Luigi, I think were, were excellent casting choices. The others were kind of whatever. Um, but honestly, right, I think if you think about it, this is kind of like the perfect Mario movie. Mario does not have the best story unless you're playing like the super mario paper like paper mario or, or mario rpg or whatever it doesn't have the deepest story right it's, it's more or less a very simple quest so to speak um and you know you kind of have it's it almost felt like they have the okay we, we have to hit this point this point like so do like a, a running sequence do like the the um power-ups you know have you know mario kart in there have you know all these various enemies at some points right so it kind of felt almost like paint by the book so to speak um uh, so I think it, it, it worked well enough for what it was. It was very light, very short, right? Very paper-thin plot-wise. But I think, you know, you don't necessarily play a Mario game for the plot. You play for the technical aspects. I won't say this is also like the most technically added film. It was decent enough, passing enough, right? Um, but nothing pushing the edge of animation like, you know, say Puss in Boots um, or Spy in the Spider-Verse has been, right? So um, it was, I think, light enough popcorn. Where it's like, okay, I can kind of pick it up. I can enjoy for what it is. Um, it's kind of interesting seeing, like, you know, it, it's it's... It doesn't quite have like the same 
oomph to it, like what you know, the satisfaction you get of when you like speed run through a Mario, like I, what I imagine speed running a Mario game would be, and seeing them going. Through. I mean, you know, you kind of have these motivations, like oh, never give up, always keep trying. Which you know, if you've ever played a Mario game, you keep trying over and over and over again. I mean, that makes sense. Um, I'm almost more interested, I think, in Mario from the speed running element of seeing how people kind of break the game, which I don't think they're ever really gonna do here. So, I think. It was decent enough. I think it's a decent enough kids movie. I wouldn't say like the greatest animated movie of all time. Um, so honestly, I would kind of give this one like a, a three out of five. Um, you know, the, the music, you know, kind of, you know, there was parts of the music that were good, you know, when they have references back to other classic songs. But then uh, the the random 80s music coming in just kind of took me out of it and was not a fan of that. So overall, three out of five. Uh, Bowser was the best part by far. Um, and, and of course, again, we're definitely going to see a lot more of these in the future. So just buckle in and be ready. And now, as far as the Dungeons and Dragons movie goes, um, so again, I am not necessarily a direct Dungeons and Dragons player. I've played like two sessions of Dungeons and Dragons with two different campaigns that never kind of went anywhere, unfortunately. Um, but you know, I am tangential enough. I mean, I play Magic the Gathering a lot, so uh, and I have friends who are in Dungeons and Dragons, and so it's it's a kind of thing where I'm very tangentially aware of a lot of things um, by kind of again by osmosis, right? And Honestly, from what I my limited experience with Dungeons and Dragons, I thought that this captured, you know, I think both of these films captured their respective games a lot very well, right? Like, you know, one of my favorite fan theories is that Guardians of the Galaxy, the first one, is just basically people playing RPG. They're taking it completely not seriously. They have kind of like this, you know, lackadaisical tone around danger, and they say, okay, let me try this cool thing and see if it works, and the DM kind of makes it work or so. Um, that's basically how this felt, right? You'd sell, it felt like people actually playing a Dungeons & Dragons game. Um, you know, I, I read an interview that, you know, Chris Pine, you know, people complain, hardcore fans, like, he's a bard, but he doesn't use any bardic spells. Well, it seems like he's, you know, based on the kind of player who doesn't do their homework, doesn't know all their spells, and just kind of like, you know, ad-libs and role plays along, and hey, let me try this whole thing, see if it works, and rolls dice only when the when the dungeon master tells him to do so, right? So, you know, I think it it, it having all these different character archetypes, having all of these uh, different um, different uh, different different you know the different mechanics kind of came into play in a sense, right? That you could see how this would work as an actual thing. One of the things I appreciated is they actually came in with the overhead shots of different rooms when they got introduced. So you got a sense of how it was, um, and you could get right like for example the Paladin Zenk, um, played by the guy from Bridgerton whose name I can't pronounce. Um, you know, felt like a, a DM NPC, a Dungeon Master NPC, right? You have kind of like you know. This, this kind of glib attitude, very Marvel-esque, quippy in a way, but in a way that makes sense like it would be someone in a very dire straight situation kind of having kind of fun at the situation, right? Um, some people were saying like, hey, they sort of cut back to like, you know, people actually playing the game. I thought that would potentially cheapen, I think, the impact of it. Um, and there's a decent enough story in here. I mean, it's kind of a cliche, you know, found family um, and so on, right? Believing in yourself and, and so on. But, you know, in a sense, those are the kind of things that, that would reasonably come up in like a... a character progression in a Dungeon Master store in a, in a tabletop role-playing session. So I appreciate that. I mean, again, obviously it's very expensive, right? You could tell, I mean, I appreciate they have like the practical effects in here going on, which, you know, they could have easily went lazily CGI, but when they went practical with it, which probably cost them money and it's why it's not going to be profitable, but I appreciate that very much. You know, there are a lot of in-jokes that work on two levels. Like there's this joke about these monsters that eat people, that attack people with intelligence and then they end up bypassing them and then like, no, that's kind of insulting, isn't it? Well, on, it works on one level where it's like, hey, you know, it's a joke about, uh, you know, the characters aren't that smart, but also the fact that none of them play a character who uses intelligence as the highest trait. Uh, so it makes sense that they wouldn't go after them, right? So all stuff like that, I mean, that is... Um 
it's just like a masterpiece. I'm really, it's really a saying this isn't going to get more attention and make more money. I love this one. I would love to come back and revisit this in the future with Chris Pine or with other people. I mean, the fact that, you know, these are the same directors who did Game Night, uh, which is a very criminally underrated film. I really enjoyed that a couple of years ago when that came out. Um, definitely would look forward to seeing this one again and seeing what they do in the future. So honestly, I just had so much fun with this one. I gave this one a five out of five for me. One of the most and more enjoyable experiences in the movie theaters lately. Uh, and with that, that's a wrap for this episode. Two ideas for what I should cover at the box office watch e- email boxofficewatchpodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter, BO Watch Podcast, or so on Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play. Make sure to subscribe, leave a review, at the very least tell a friend that any of that helps. Links to all that will be in our show notes. Numbers you can still come from dnumbers.com. Intro out to music from Kevin MacLeod and confidentfilmers.io. Editing production by Ninja Boy Media. Until next time, this has been the Box Office Watch. And remember, our watch goes on. Yeah.